In its quest to provide an open forum for discussion of controversial issues, this station allows hosts and their guests to express themselves without any significant censorship. You're advised that any views expressed by the hosts or their guests are not necessarily the views of Tuggy Entertainment or its partners. us on a journey into the unknown, the unexplained, and the unbelievable. We will test your senses and challenge your beliefs. A world where science and religion clash. Or do they? You will meet real people and hear real stories, but you will not believe. You will witness strange sights and hear strange sounds, but you will not believe. This is the New England Ghost Project. Welcome to the Buenos dias, uh, compadres and senoritas. Welcome to Ghost Chronicles, next snow international. I am Ron Kolick, your host, the gatekeeper to the realm of the unknown, the unexplained, and perhaps the unbelievable New England's own Van Helsink. With me all the way across the pond is the rock star parapsychologist himself, Mr. Cal Cooper. Cal. Bonjour, Juan. Comment ça va? Oh, there you go. There you I'm go. Equ- <laughs> I'm we equally as bad in all languages, so it really doesn't matter to me. Come no. on, Talivu. How's that? There you go. Uh, come see, come see. <laughs> yeah, whatever. <laughs> How you so, doing? Cal, welcome. Uh, you, you've got your hours straightened out. It's actually uh, you guys haven't caught up the daylight savings time, so you're still an hour behind us. Uh, yeah, or ahead of right. us. I mean, it it was only like 10, 15 minutes ago. It was light outside, and we're right on the seafront here, and the, the cloud cover's just coming over. It's just starting to turn dark. So, uh, yeah, I think we'll start to shift again and get more closer to, well, we're a few hours away from you, but things will start to get normal again. <laughs> when when do they change the uh, the clocks uh, there? Oh, you're the wrong. You're asking the wrong person here. I'm rubbish. I forget leap years. I even forget what day it is most of the time, so there's no point in asking me, Ron. <laughs> oh, I see. You're very highly intellectual, and, and your brain can't deal with the mundane. I, I understand that quite well. It's one of okay. those things. You, you can be an academic of all sorts, but when it comes to common sense things that you should know, most of the academics probably don't. I know it's very soon. Uh, we've got to change the clocks again, and it's whenever we um, turn the clocks back, it's usually late October um, towards Halloween. So. Yeah, you, you turn them back and you got to turn them ahead. So it happens twice a year. I'll just give you a hint. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, okay. Just, just kind of, you know, has something to do with the axis of the earth and rotation and whatever. Yeah, yeah. But it, so it was get... also intended for farmers, so they had more daylight so they could actually continue to work throughout the day and collect crops or whatever else they were doing. There you go. There you go. But, you know, they lived a hard life anyway, so... <laughs> But do you know that actually the the, uh, the, the farmers when potatoes uh, they, they didn't believe they thought they were evil and they wouldn't uh, eat potatoes originally. When was what what year are we thinking of round about the? Oh, like I can remember that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it was really it actually saved Europe. It was during the Dark Ages, and and then it, everybody was like you know 
fighting with everybody, and they they would go into one village and burn all the crops and everything else, and the only thing that saved them from starving to death was all the potatoes and stuff they had under the ground. So, oh, there you really? go. How you like that, huh? I did not know that, but I am impressed that you know that. That's cool. <laughs> I I know tons of useless information. Oh, I I know loads of useless information, but I can never remember it all at once. It'll be the most bizarre setting, and suddenly I'll turn around to you and say, "Did you know that?" And it'll be something very stupid. But it is also equally interesting. <laughs> it's funny how our brains work. It really is. I mean, maybe this has something to do with the paranormal. I don't know. And anyways, I know we have a, a, a guest on the show, and uh, it's John Sales uh, from some kind of paranormal group. I can never remember the name, as usual. Uh, so anyways, we're going to bring him on, but first we're going to play an episode of Beyond Bizarre, speaking about Bizarre. Cool. Full disclosure. In July of 1991, the Supreme Court of New York State made a declaration that a home in Nyack, New York was haunted. Why was the state's high authority brought in to rule over a matter of the supernatural? Because the couple who brought the case to court claimed that the haunting was never disclosed when they bought the house. They said the former owners or agents should have informed them of the haunting just as termite damage or any other major issue needed to be disclosed in keeping with the law. And the haunting itself kept the home from being inhabitable. To recoup their down payment, they took the matter to court. They were awarded damages after the Supreme Court declared the home haunted as a matter of law. But in Idaho, the state of Idaho has enacted a provision known as the Ghost in the Attic Statute which went into effect in 1998. It states that neither a home seller nor the seller's broker is liable for non-disclosing that a property may be haunted. Even if the house is the site of a known suicide or homicide, the seller need not disclose the fact unless the buyer specifically writes to the seller and inquires. A freaky fact from the Book of the Bazaar, available wherever books are sold. Yes, very interesting. It's cool. I always love those. We don't do those so often on the show. How come? Uh, I don't know. It's, you know, I never know what to do with you guys over there at the con. <laughs> I don't know how serious you are or whatever, so it it's a little frustrating for me. No, I think we should do some more of those. Well, we will, because we actually, that is, Vala, that is by, by the way, is by Vala Ventura, uh, who absolutely loves me. In fact, she wants to marry me and become uh, Vala Van Helsink, but uh, that's another story for another time. Mm. It, anyways, we have a guest on the line. He is, uh, well, you know him better than I do. Uh, why don't you introduce him, young man? Okay. Um, here with us this evening is the, the legendary John Sayles from Investigators of the Paranormal Phenomena. John? Good evening. Yeah, we have him here. Hello, John. How are you doing? All right, mate. You? Yeah, yeah. Very well, thank you. Good, and good. Um, John, Ron, Ron, John. So <laughs> polite. So polite. That's why I don't play that crap on the radio, because you guys are, like, so polite. 
But anyways, John, welcome aboard. And, and I actually looked at your website, and you do a—you know—it was very interesting. I, I see that you're doing a lot of work on orbs, uh, Cal's favorite subject, and uh, also uh, poltergeists. And so, I guess the the first question we should ask you is—you know—how did you get involved in the paranormal, and, and what what you know what floats your boat, what makes you tick? Um, so- I've been interested, really, since since I was about 10 years old, and obviously used to read the books in the library and that sort of thing. And um, 10 years ago, I used to go on these so-called organised events and um, found that it was all put on and it was all basically showmanship. And I thought, well, that's not what I want. I want to go out and actually see if there's anything there. So um, that's when I decided to start forming my own team and, and become more serious in in the old paranormal investigation business. But um, I suppose what keeps me going is that you never know what's around the corner. You know, you you, you could be lucky enough to get that all-important piece of evidence that everybody's looking for. So so you think that we can actually get some evidence investigating the paranormal then, I guess, from your uh, dissertation you just gave us? Well, there's there's no reason why not, you know. I mean, then who's to say that it isn't real and who's to say that it is? You know, at the end of the day, everyone's going to want evidence, especially from a scientific standpoint. And if I was the one to get that, then then so be it. But if not, I should just keep searching. Yeah, so, but, but, I mean, that, Cal, I mean, kind of you agree with this, too. I mean, the, the science community really doesn't recognize what we do anyways, and... So, I mean, we're not going to get evidence to uh, satisfy them as well. So, I, I, you know, I, I, is it really evidence, I guess, is what you, you would have to call it under that, under yeah, that definition. If you're looking for evidence of something that you would consider to be objectively paranormal, it's be, beyond like a, a hallucination, which parapsychology uh, would consider a sensory experience when we see a ghost and you're the only one there and then we start to question it a bit more when there's maybe two or three people that are seeing the same ghost at the same time and uh, when you can back this up with eyewitness testimony and um, other people's accounts from seeing it then we're starting to actually gather some information of um, something that's unusual and um, shouldn't be and isn't recognized by science i won't go as far as saying that you know that the paranormal is completely unrecognized by science because parapsychology is starting to be recognized in more and more universities now um, the paranormal as a subject is becoming more and more interdisciplinary you've got um, psychology sociology anthropology physics philosophy theology all these different areas uh, even biology are kind of coming in on the paranormal to approach it from different angles and it's fantastic because it is branching out and becoming very interdisciplinary to actually use different kinds of methods in approaching okay these are human experiences and they're going on for thousands of years, how they developed, what are the different forms, and more so, how can we um, effectively go out and research um, the paranormal? So, you know, we're looking for all kinds of psychological explanations, and then maybe working through to physics, we're looking through environmental explanations for paranormal phenomena. Somewhere in there, there must be something that doesn't fit any categories that, or any subjects that can possibly explain what we're experiencing. So there might be what you guys are considering, uh, what you guys are considering, evidence of the paranormal. Um, but we've already got names for it. We've already got categories, you know. But if psychokinesis 
for example, is real and we can move things through the power of the mind, we don't know what mechanisms are necessarily involved that makes you be able to move objects with the power of the mind. So this is something that we're, you know, we're looking into and science is very slowly and cautiously but surely starting to recognise it. But the, at the end of the day, you're not going to change individual people's personal opinions on the paranormal. But a science so, as a whole could start to recognize So let's, let's ask John that. I mean, John, you've had your website up. You've been researching for quite a while now. I mean, when you... Uh, I, I am sure you run into people that, that say everything you do is just a bunch of poppycock. Uh, yeah. <laughs> is, do, do, do you find that? Oh, you, you do sometimes. One of our team members is a skeptic. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and obviously... It's, it's good to have that because you can get too caught up in an investigation when when you're listening out for things and when you're trying to find things out. And it's nice to have a sceptic within the team that's going to keep you grounded. You know, he's, he's going to say, well, no, well, well, I don't think it's that. Possibly it could be this. And it's sort of like it keeps you more on the level, as it were. I mean, obviously, I believe, otherwise I wouldn't be doing it. But it is nice to have that other side of it where someone's going to go out of their way to blatantly disprove what you're experiencing. Do, do you yeah, think but it, isn't, isn't the definition of a scientist is someone who is skeptical. Basically, they look at the evidence strictly on science. They are not influenced by any uh, emotions or uh, uh, well, I guess uh, emotions would be the primary thing, but isn't that really what a definition of a scientist? He just looks at the evidence, and it, so he is basically skeptical if you're a true scientist. Yeah, I, I mentioned that the other day um, in an interview that I did, and I said only a true scientist um, can be called a uh, a skeptic. A true scientist is a skeptic if they're going to be doing things the right way. If you're going to be cynical about something, then you're not kind of a true scientist because that means that you'll be presented something one day and because of your own personal beliefs or bias, you can just dismiss it no matter what the outcome of whatever's being right. presented in front of you. At the same time, I feel that labeling yourself as a paranormal investigator, John, do you feel that this somehow would actually affect your judgment sometimes when you're, pro- when you're faced with paranormal phenomena, say in a haunted location, because you're labeling yourself as a, a believer? Do you, do you think that will probably take away your um, kind of ability to critically judge the possible explanations for it? I mean, I don't think so, because j- just of late, we've, we've been taking, you know, well, I've been taking more of a, a, a different standpoint on things. Obviously, when, when you first go into somewhere, you're quite excited because there's been reports of things happening. But as of late, you know, you do go to a lot of places and you don't get anything at all. So, so therefore, whatever's been reported to you by whoever's reported it, you do take a different view of it. You do think, well, you know, well, well, perhaps that is the building moving. Perhaps that is something within the walls, you know, like hot pipes, for instance. You know, so it's, it's a, a much of a muchness, really, I think. You know, sometimes you can get excited if it's a place that you've been really trying to get into for a long time. Then other times you just go along and think, well, no, well, I don't think that was paranormal. I think that was this, you know? Mm. Well, is that just from... And it, the, Oh, sorry, is that, is that just from anecdotes? Let's just say um, you and the, the single sceptic of the group that you mentioned, say you were both in a room together 
and um, you heard something crack in the corner of the room, then you hear something drop on the floor, something small. Have you ever been in that situation with that sceptic in the team and maybe both of you suddenly start di discussing completely different theories as to what could have just happened? Or, you know, talk me through how, what, what would you do in that situation? Well, yeah, we we have been in that situation before. I mean, that that was um, a classic case was, um, when we were investigating a house in Woodingdean that was supposedly having poltergeist activity. Mm -hmm. You know, and and his um, daytime job, um, he's he deals with a lot with buildings and, and structures and that sort of thing. So, so of course, what we were thinking was one thing. He could turn around and say, "Well, no, look, you know, I think it's this," and on further investigation find him to be true mm. you know and he's, he's hit the nail on the head with exactly what what the sound was but it's, it's good because it does it it keeps you grounded yeah because it's all too easy to get caught up in the moment but the same with if if you're taking members of the public with you and, and a lot of the time it's it's just down to paradoria mm. you know right. you, you could have 10 people in a room and, and it only takes one person to say, oh, did you hear that? And five could turn around and say, yeah, they did, when they, in fact they didn't, purely because they're caught up with their emotions in the moment. Right. You know, that reminds me of uh, Karen O'Keefe's, uh, when he came over here about three years ago, and he always told that story. I actually loved it. I made him tell it because it was so great, because he used to say when he was on Most Haunted that uh, Yvette or something would scream. He said, did you hear that? And then the, the one next to him in the line would say, yeah, I heard that. And the other yeah. one said, I'd heard it. And then I'd go all the way down the line to the last guy, and the guy would say, no, I didn't, but it came from over there. <laughs> so it's, uh, I really enjoyed it because that's, yeah, that's that panoderia where we all get influenced by the thing. The interesting thing about uh, doing an investigating, though, is you, you, because it's not a laboratory, and, and we like to banter that word scientific around, it, it makes it very difficult to be really scientific because uh, we can go there and we can set up our instruments and do this and do that, and we can get readings and, you know, be quite honest. Uh, we might get nothing, or we might get something, but we can't, just from the evidence we collected or whatever information we collected, we really can't say that the eyewitness reports were were false or true, uh, because we weren't there when they occurred. We can only investigate the environment at that particular time when we're there. Yeah, that's, that's right. That's what makes it so difficult, because, you know, it's, it's the same with scientists. Unless you've got ten scientists standing with you at that exact moment in time, that right. you see, and they turn around and see it too. I mean, then they're going to say, well, "Well, look, they're onto something here." You know, they're they're not wasting their time creeping around supposedly haunted places at three in the morning. You know, they're, they're really onto something. Mm. I have mentioned in the in the past before, though, that's like, say, you have got those ten scientists there. What if then? Those ten scientists take that uh, film footage away and show it to ten other scientists, and they say, "Well, we weren't there at the time, so we're quite skeptical of what the ten of you have seen." And so, this is a problem. Hey, uh, with, that's uh, the problem of it. Yeah. I I feel it's the goalpost forever moving, which is the the problem, and um, this is why we can actually use these kind of uh, subtle techniques of monitoring the environment. As you say, Ron, you've just got the accounts when you go there in the first place. You could go to a haunted location, you've never been there before, but you read all the accounts, you become familiar with which rooms are the common haunted ones, what are the particular experiences people have in those rooms, 
and then you can go about, you can uh, take in your EMF meter or more so uh, thermometers and that, you, you test the changes in temperature throughout the day, hot and cold spots and so on, and you can see what environmental factors and changes in the environment, sudden changes, actually match up with people's experiences in certain rooms. And whether during the investigation, people that aren't familiar with the location, don't know its background, didn't read the reports that you didn't read, that, that you did read, sorry, um, see if they actually have an experience in um, those particular rooms as well. You know, the, there's sort of ways of going about testing it and then you've got to start to compile these reports as well. And, you know, very often there are a lot of environmental factors that are responsible for people's experiences within the haunted location, but they don't seem to explain everything, not every time anyway. It was interesting. Uh, I just completed my first semester uh, of teaching uh, uh, paranormal CSI at a college, which you know we were talking about uh, getting the credit and everything. I thought that was you know you know uh, for Northern Essex to allow that. I thought that was a big step for them. But anyways, and part of the courses, we each of the students would actually have to collect individual evidence, and they did this independently on a particular location. And then at the end of the course, it was basically like a game of Clue almost, where uh, they had to tell me who haunted it and why. And what we did is, is we actually compared each room. And it was funny because we have independent uh, people working separately, and some of, a lot of them actually got the same results, which was, uh, you know, interesting. Is that actually proof that the place was haunted? Well, of course not, but it's certainly interesting and uh I think that's what we kind of do out there. We look for that interesting stuff that maybe is working to a proof. In other words, uh, it's kind of like on the uh, the Internet stuff. If you have something on the Internet, even though if it's wrong and it goes over and over again, and, but it's reported and reported again, soon it becomes the truth. So is, is that kind of what we do at the paranormal is that we just create truths and that whatever evidence we collect is just compounded upon each other and eventually that becomes a truth, whether it's like it's a haunted location or a particular ghost that haunts that location. My, you're getting very deep this evening, Ron. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, uh, I, yeah, I think that can happen sometimes. I, I think even though you have the past reports of certain haunted locations, especially as um, the investigator and trying to be sceptical and as objective as possible, you've really got to read the reports, be familiar with them, but then step back from it. And as John mentioned earlier as well, you, you've um, got to try and separate yourself from... Uh, what you're experiencing in the location, even, you know, there might be a sudden bang or tap or something that makes you jump. It's always important to have as many skeptics on hand so you can say, right, stop, assess the situation, what happened there. But I have seen loads of cases, as you mentioned, where some people have made up stories about the location, told it to people, and then people start reporting seeing these ghosts that, you know, aren't even known to haunt the location. So it shows how much psychology actually plays on paranormal phenomena as well and how much you've got to take that into account oh definitely i mean we we, we i don't even bother um researching a location anymore i'll i'll get told somewhere and obviously i'll try and book it up but but we went to one location um up in essex purely because how active the reports were filing through you know oh yeah we've been here it's absolutely brilliant yeah we've been here it's absolutely brilliant we went up there and do you know what we found Absolutely nothing. Um, We drove all that way and it was a completely dead night. Even to the point where um, we had booked up to go back 
and I just cancelled it. And and the, the the people running it said, oh yeah, you know, we, we'd like for you to get the full experience. We'll offer you a discount. And, and I said, well, you know, sorry, but we're not going to lie just for the sake of putting a report on the internet. You know, it's not to say that it's not haunted, but how come every other group who's been in there, every time they've been there, they've had a really good night, yet we go there, and because nothing's happened, we actually say that. How long did you spend there? We were there from about eight in the evening to about three in the morning. Do you so think it was a good period of time? Yeah, yeah, quite a long time there. Maybe, maybe if you'd spent like a few weeks there. I mean, this place, as you mentioned, they were charging, so it probably wouldn't have been possible. It would have cost you a fortune. <laughs> if, if, it, if it was open access to the place, I'm sure if you'd have spent weeks there and there are, you know, a, a long history of people reporting things, you might have seen something because it just all depends on being in the right place at the right time, and it seems that you yeah. were in the right place but at the wrong time. But it's just funny that every other group that's been there has reported that it's been absolutely brilliant. Now, are they saying that because they've read other reports from the other groups, just so yeah, they don't feel left out? Or is it because they've actually had a good night there? Right. Mm. You know, if, if we go somewhere and we don't get anything, we'll say so. We, we, we won't, like, say, oh, well, it's obviously not haunted because we didn't find anything. Well, perhaps it is haunted, but the night that we went there, we didn't find anything. But we will say that. We won't make something up just for the sake of it. You know, that if you start doing that, you lose all respect in the paranormal community. Mm. I, I was investigating Plessyvale Mills for a, a number of years. I think I kept on going there on and off for th three years or so. But mm. there was one time where I was going about every weekend to go back and check up on it and um, take along some... Uh, fellow investigators and stuff you'd have some nights where you know it'd reach you've been there a couple of days or so you're taking some sandwiches for the weekend and stuff and loads of coffee and um you'd set stuff up nothing would happen nothing would happen personally either you wouldn't get any uncomfortable feelings you just felt quite at home being there um whether you're familiar with the place or not and, and sometimes it reached four or five in the morning and you think that's it i'm, I'm done for now i'm going home and nothing happened and You've got loads and loads of film footage with nothing on it. And then other times you go there and crazy stuff would happen. You know, you'd um, throw rocks in one area of the mill and you get rocks being thrown back on command. You know, that was, at times, it could be the most spectacular haunted location. And yeah. at other times, it was absolutely, for want of a better word, it was absolutely dead. John, let me let me ask you, John. Have you ever run into the case, for instance, where you be setting up equipment or something, or or breaking down equipment, and then you have stuff happen when you when you're not recording? I mean, do you find that happens uh, to you at all? Yeah, that has happened on a few occasions, and then of course you set the equipment up, then you get. I think you know it's it's as if they're saying, "Oh, look, we're here, but now we're not going to do anything for you." <laughs> You know, so it, it does happen from time to time, but but not that often, really. Okay, we're coming up on the break, and and I, you, you started doing a lot of work on orbs, and I thought you looked at it at a different point of view. I would like to we'll talk a little bit about that when we come back from the break. And yeah, no uh, sure, I get uh, Steve Parsons on. <laughs> no, you can leave Steve at home. Although he saved my butt last week. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, you are listening to Ghost Chronicles International uh, with uh, Cal Cooper and 
Uh, oh, by the way, is your new Don't book out yours. yet? Is your book out? On mine. Um, uh, next week. It'll be shipped out next week. Anyone that orders it, it'll be posted next week. Okay. So you listen to Ghost Chronicles International, Cal Cooper and Ron Kolick, and we'll be right back with the following messages here on TojiNet, PowerX, Ghost Channel, and beyond. We'll be right back. Welcome to TokiNet, radio with a cutting edge. They're creepy and they're kooky, mysterious and spooky. They all talk gobbledygooky, the Parrax family. The shows are paranormal, not stuffy but informal. The topics are abnormal, the Parrax family. They're strange. Unrestrained. So grab your favorite brew. It's time to rendezvous as we give awards to the Pair X family. Take 6,427. All right. Hi, I'm Ron Kolek, author and lead investigator of the New England Ghost Project, New England's own Van Helsink. And I'm Ann Kerrigan, the blonde bombshell, and I'm the lead investigator of East Bridgewater's Most Haunted. And we'd like to invite you to tune in. Ghost Chronicles, the next generation. Every Wednesday night. At 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on www.toginet.com. So, so yeah, what are they going to hear on this stupid show? What are they going to hear? They are going to hear things that they can't believe are happening. Like uh, Beyond Bizarre. And Cemetery Tripping. Oh, that's your deal, right? Absolutely. Yeah, one of these days you're going to get so scared of one of these cemetery tripping things that uh, I'll have to get a new (laughs) co-host. I am brave beyond belief. Yeah, I will say. scares me. So anyways, if you're bored and you got nothing to do on Wednesday night, tune in to Ghost Chronicles Next Generation with Anne and Ron. See you then. listening to Ghost Chronicles Next Generation with Cal Cooper and Ron Cole. And our very special guest is John Sales. Uh, so, John, uh, I know we have a cemetery trip can come up because uh, Cal wants to listen to it, I'm sure. But anyways, <laughs> let's, let's talk a little bit about that, the UR project you were working on and how did you... Uh, you know, what got you involved in that? Because, you know, uh, we have uh, Steve Parson on, uh, was it last week, and well, a few times, and he's not a big orb guy. <laughs> yeah, um, I sort of fell into it, really. I mean, obviously in, interested in the phenomena in itself, and um, I was talking to a, a friend on Facebook who's in the States, and he was, like, really getting into research. And we, we were just chatting about it, and I just found it really interesting. So I thought I'd start delving into it as well. And, and uh, of course, I, I had a speech at um, Spooks Fest in York last year, didn't I, Cal? Yep, the first one, yep. Yeah, that I sort of, like, stumbled through, I think. But, um, <laughs> oh, no, you, you did Oh, go on, go on, go on, go on, keep going. <laughs> yeah, but, but, of course, um, been, been really interested in it and obviously doing the research, doing, doing the usual thing, you know, trying to photograph dust and, and that sort of thing and and showing what rain looks like when it's photographed. And, and I just find it really interesting, you know, 
that there's definitely something about them that's that's I'm not sure whether it's paranormal or, or whether it's it's diving off into a completely different direction altogether, which I'm also looking at at the moment. But but it's, there's definitely an interest there, and I'd like some answers to it. You, oh, did a very, you did a very good presentation there because um, it wasn't a massive crowd, but you had got like four parapsychologists yeah, in, in, in the audience. And wasn't it one of your first kind of open public presentations as well? Like it was that. the very first one. All right, there you go. But I, I remember one, one of the last slides you'd taken like um, near water at night time. And that was, um, I think I got a laser pen out so I could actually show examples. But you got a really good example in there that you don't often see. And it was like um, a dragonfly that was just at the right angle that you could actually see the outline of it being an insect. That's so you could see that the rest of the orbs there were obviously <laughs> insects out in the wild above water and, you know, possibly in a kind of very humid place. But, you know, the, the flash had gone out, it reflected back to the lens and then got pixelated and turned into the orbs. But you just caught certain things at the right angle. Yeah. And I, I've personally not really, well, I've got to admit full stop, I'm not interested in orbs but you know when it comes to discussing them there is a sort of science to how they actually occur and this is what Steve Parsons presented um, in 2010 and it's also on the Parascience website as well um, the summary of his um, research and he showed that by taking stereo photo lenses so 3D cameras and having at least two lenses or three or four um, like with a Nimslo camera that has four but that's 35 millimeter if we take digital 3D it's taking a photo at the with two lenses at the precise time both are taking a you know exact same time both lenses so you've got two images that are ever so slightly apart in terms of their angle so what he showed was if the orb isn't appearing um, in one of the photos then it is dust it is insects it is moisture because that single orb was at the right angle at the precise point in time when you took the photo for the flash to capture it to reflect go back into the camera and become pixelated as the orb that it appears as um you know if it's something objective that's there um that's you know quite a physical mass of energy or whatever we want to call the orb surely if it was real like that it would actually appear in the numerous um uh, the numerous frames that's uh, being taken when the cameras uh, when the cameras click to take the photo. Steve is far better explaining this than me because it's his research, but I'm probably putting it in the most basic of terms. But that that was the thing that kind of um, showed off what orbs are really, and they have such natural um, causes. A simple technique, and I think more paranormal investigators should be using them: 3D cameras, be it video cameras or just photo cameras. Um, but uh, yeah, that that was kind of the counter argument to what orb, orbs are. Yeah, Someone I've, fight I've got one of those cameras <laughs> as well, and um, we, we've obviously experimented with it with, um, without much success, really. I mean, obviously, 35mm film to get developed these days is quite expensive, so yeah. I, I think that the, the next stage is, is possibly to get a digital one. I don't know at the moment, but I've, I've got 3D capability on my camera that I use. Yeah, but it is, does that have two lenses, though? No, it's just a single lens, you see, so it, it, there, there again, you, you're, you're still stuck. Yeah, you'd be defeating the object with that. It has to have yeah. multiple lenses, so it's, it's taking a very fair and accurate photo where everything is taken at the exact same time, but through multiple lenses, so you've got that slightly different angle. 
Um, so the camera can tell you what it was seeing from that angle at that exact same time. Yeah. And it, it is a very effective technique. I mean, Steve's got loads of examples of these two exact scenes, and you can see that they're just slightly apart when you compare them. If they were overlapped, it would make the 3D image, but apart, yeah. you can see that the orb's in one frame, but it's not in the other. Um, you bought one of the Nimslow cameras, which I've got as well, and as you yeah. say, it's becoming quite expensive to get that film developed, and it defeats the object to get it produced as a photograph <laughs> because it just turns out 3D, but certainly when you get it developed, you've got four negatives there, and you can hold them up or put them to um, a magnifying glass, and you can actually see if there's any difference in all four frames as to what appeared. Um, there have been reports of orbs appearing on 35mm, but it's not as common as digital cameras, especially when the first digital cameras came out. And you go to parties, you take photos in your living room, and they'd be all over the place. There's loads of orbs. You know, the, the more we've advanced and the, the uh, technology's got better and you've got more pixels in the cameras, the less the orbs appear, but they still do appear. Yeah, I mean, we, we, we've done experiments with... Um using the medium on the team you know like taking pictures and there's nothing in them and then then our medium calling in for want of a better word orbs and and then they're appearing on film you know like how do you explain that mm. you know, well, uh, again you, you it, can it, ask yourself she's sitting here yeah, if, if you want um, science to explain it then again you've got to use the 3D cameras Steve showed an yeah. example the other day um, we really need him here to fight his corner. He, because um, I'm doing a crap job. <laughs> um, Steve uh, showed an example the other day of some medium that was in a crowd of people, and I think he put on the comment, the medium at this precise time said that there's a little girl present or, or something along those lines, and or said that the orb in the photo was the spirit of a little girl. And I think he's kind of looking in the general direction, and it's probably about a foot above his head. But you look at the 3D image, and the orb is in one picture, and it's not in the other. Mm. I mean, I've seen loads of orb photographs where you'll take the photo and then later show it to a medium and say, oh, look, I caught a really nice orb. And they'll say, oh, that's the spirit of so-and-so who I saw earlier. And, um, you know, they're always jumping to this paranormal um, explanation rather than looking for the rational ones. And even before um, the suggestion of using 3D cameras came up, I was always very sceptical of it because when, when you're sat in a room during the day and you've got sunlight coming through the window and you sit at the right angle, you can see there are thousands upon thousands of dust particles moving around us all the time. And it just takes that one, just that one to be in the right angle when you take a photograph for the flash to catch it, it to reflect back and to become pixelated. Yeah. And um, that, that's why the early cameras had trouble because they were capturing virtually all of the dust particles in there. And especially when someone's been moving about in the room or especially at parties where people have been dancing, they've been disturbing the dust. The dust has started to rise with the heat, so it's all around you. And that's why with the photographs from people's parties, they were everywhere, absolutely everywhere. And you can test it as well by taking a photo of a room with some chairs in it. And there might be the odd one or two orbs. And you go over to the chair and you just hit it with your fist a few times and take another photo, and there'll probably be loads because all this dust has come out of the seating and, and so on. I think we even uh, threw a plate full of uh, flour into the air once, and, you know, everywhere again. And this was when we had early digital, uh, uh, early digital um, technology as well. I think this was like 2004 when we tested that, and, you know, since then I was just never interested in orbs, whether on camera or video camera. But there are still a lot of people who uh, do actually think there's something more to that, but... It, it, 
we've got a repeatable scientific technique that's showing to be consistent, such as the use of 3D cameras. Pick it up, Ron. It's a phone so, call from the dead. Don't worry about it. Yeah, it's a phone call from the dead. <laughs> I get those all the time. Don't worry. Send them my way. <laughs> uh, the interesting, the interesting thing about it, I mean, as much as I know, I actually hate OBS, by the way. Uh, as much, as much as I know that that OBS are created by dust, they're created by water, they're created by insects. There are so many people that will testify that an orb is an angel, an orb is their lost cousin, an orb is their dog, an orb is an extraterrestrial, and to them, they're real. They uh, they mean something. They're, they have a life of their own. Uh, the orb project, I don't know if you ever heard about that, uh, it, it's uh, almost a whole religion where they they worship the orbs just about, and, and they can get the orbs to to uh, commit to music and, and, and dance for them and so forth. I mean, it, it, that's why I absolutely hate orbs. I just can't, you know, I mean, you catch you catch an orb where you, you it might go through a wall and show up in the next room. I mean, it's a little hard to explain that as a dust particle. So, I mean, I, I really hate them. So, anyway, that's me. Let's put it in another context. It, aside from the cameras, if someone claims they can see them, that's a different matter because then again we're, we're kind of putting that into the category of ghosts and apparitions and it's a sensory experience. It might not be everyone in the room that can see them, but there might be people now and then that go to a haunted location and say, I saw a big ball of light. After all, if we go back through the early records and go back to seance rooms and uh, stuff like that, people often reported big balls of light and energy maybe appearing above the medium. So, you know, that's a different uh, phenomenon. Um, that's people actually seeing something rather than these balls of light on film that we suddenly say that's an orb, it's a spirit energy. Um, you know, science has been able to explain that away. So, you know, if you, anyone wants to keep researching orbs, I think something interesting to look at is people that actually report physically seeing orbs because then you've got to look into visual perception and also the accounts of people seeing orbs and what situations do people claim they can see these balls of light and what exactly do they look like because they might be totally different to the orbs that are on uh, these photographs. People might Absolutely. just say, oh yeah, but, oh, but Because um, cause we've seen them at um, investigations as well and also um, I've, um, I've seen them in um, Alison's house as well and so is Alison. So, you know, that, that, that they are completely different because quite often at a location, I mean, I've, I've seen them um, like blue flashing lights go across the room and that sort of thing. Hmm. Right. I, I've actually seen lights too, but the question is, you know, what are they? Are they orbs or are they just a light uh, anomaly that's, it's, it's, is it totally different? Is it the same? Or uh, yes and no. I mean, that's the problem. We, you know, it's, it's, it's just not enough research and it's just not enough, not, not, I hate to use the word evidence, but not evidence that they are uh, something other than dust particles. I mean, that's the problem with them. Again, this is why we've got to concentrate on visual perception, because if people in haunted locations are claiming they're seeing them, um, mm -hmm. I bet nine times out of ten, these were in situations where the lights were out. And, oh, yeah. Um, there, there, yeah there's no torch light either. You know, it's, it's yeah. pretty dark in there, and, and, and we, we've still seen them before. Hmm. 
Yeah, um, the mind tends to play tricks on you when you're in the dark, and I've had it before. Especially, have you ever looked at a bright light during the day and then looked away, and you'll get like a green or a blue or a red sort of flashing dot that seems to follow your vision wherever you go. You know it's not there, but it, yeah. it's in the front of your vision. And it's kind of like that. When you're in the dark, you start to see those patterns of colours again. And um, it's there are numerous um, consequences to being in the dark on haunted locations. One is that you can't actually see what's going on um, most of the time. And also, um, the problem is your reports or any reports from someone that's gone to a haunted location, we have to be extremely sceptical of what they say they've seen or what they say they've seen move in the dark, be it lights or shadows, images, because we find it very difficult to judge distance in the dark and one study that was carried out in particular was I think it was a psychologist called Sheriff I could be wrong because it's been a while ago since I looked at this study but what he did anyway or what they did it might have been a woman um, it was they put participants in a cupboard and sat them down and then they'd shine a beam of light through into the cupboard and the cupboard was dark obviously and the beam of light had hit the wall and they'd leave the person sitting there and after like 10 minutes or so they'd take the person out and say Right, I'd like you to tell me how far that beam of light has moved, roughly, in the time you've been sat there. And some people say only a couple of centimetres, maybe a foot, maybe a metre. Truth was, it hadn't moved at all. But because it was so dark, your um, visual perception had no way of judging where the light had started and where it ended. And this is why in daytime you can judge distance, because you can see, well, it started there and it ended there. In the dark, it's very kind of difficult to see if things have moved. I'm sure both of you have encountered at some point where you looked at maybe a pane of glass in a door or in a window in the distance in a dark location, and it always appears as though shadows are moving in front of it, walking backwards and forth. Have you experienced that? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So that, that, that's another one. Again, you know, your brain is really struggling to actually pick out distance and movement because of the dark. But if you switch the lights on, that doesn't seem to happen. Hmm. That probably isn't shedding much light on stuff. <laughs> no, but that's all right. It's, it's more food for thought than it's what we do. I mean, if we, we stop thinking, then we'll never get anywhere, to be honest with you. <laughs> if we just accept everything for what it is, then it was certainly won't get anywhere so we must think all the time we must challenge our own beliefs and uh go forth so anyways we do have to play a episode of uh cemetery tripping and then when we come back we're going to talk a little bit more with uh, john sales about uh his new project which is poltergeist so uh can we play cemetery tripping yeah cemetery tripping where each week i will feature a different cemetery that i hope you will seek out and enjoy as much as i do you can see my pictures on Facebook by doing a search for Cemetery Tripping. In honor of one of my favorite holidays, St. Patrick's Day, I would like to talk not about a single cemetery, but instead focus on a few headstones with Irish inspiration. Perhaps one of the most significant Irish symbols you may see, besides the shamrock, is the Celtic cross. Usually these crosses are adorned with Celtic knots and have a circle which unites the four arms. The knots are endless, with no beginning and no end, which symbolizes a never-ending path of permanence in the continuum of life, love, and faith. The circle is also a symbol of eternity and is often described as a halo. You may sometimes see a triangular knot pattern, which is called a triquetra, and is a sign of the Holy Trinity. You will find many examples of beautiful knotwork in Mount Auburn Cemetery in Cambridge, Massachusetts ranging in sizes from towering to only a few feet high. 
I have seen many Celtic crosses in my cemetery travels, but there is one that stands out in my mind as being both beautiful and symbolic. It's located in Forest Hill Cemetery in Jamaica Plain, Massachusetts, and contains very little knotwork. However, it is the style of the High Cross, which had references to the saints. In Christian symbolism, you will find the four saints, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, represented by the angel, the lion, the ox, and the eagle, respectively. These winged symbols are featured prominently on this cross, along with biblical representations of other saints. The next stone of Irish heritage I'd like to share is that of William Sinclair, which is located in Spencer Cemetery in Spencer, Massachusetts. It has a carving of a reclining skeleton, which for the time period in which he died is not unusual, but for the geographical area where he is buried is rather rare. It is also a very small stone, which I overlooked on my first visit, and I had to return two more times to locate it. William Sinclair was born in Ireland in about 1676, in the county of Down, in the parish of Drumblew. He lived in New England for 24 years, and died in Spencer, Massachusetts, on July 4, 1753, aged 77 years. I could not find any other information on Mr. Sinclair, but my guess is that his stone was not carved locally given its detail and was most likely carved in the Boston area and transported to Spencer along the old post road. I will end this cemetery tripping by wishing you all a happy continuum of life, love, and faith, regardless of whether you're Irish descent. And there you go, cemetery tripping. You are listening to Ghost Chronicles International with Cal Cooper and Ryan Kolick, my very special guest, John Sales. So, John, you have a new project you're working on now, and this is Poltergeist, which is really interesting. It's, a, I think, a little bit of a step from orbs to uh, actually having things being moved around other than dust particles. So let's hear about it. Um, I was kind of um, steered towards this by um, somebody else who's on here tonight. Wasn't I, Cal? Yeah, <laughs> I think it was... Um... Uh, I think after Kieran and I kind of discussed some of the orb stuff that was going on, we just said, uh, you know, if you want to kind of get your teeth into something, go for stuff like poltergeist activity because that stuff does seem to be happening, but no one can shed full light on it. As I said earlier with psychokinesis, we need to look at what mechanism, <coughs> sorry, what mechanisms are going on. So yeah. uh, how have you progressed uh, since then? Because that was a couple of years ago now. So what have you been up to? Yeah, well, we, we had one supposed poltergeist case that we went and debunked more or less straight away, which I think I mentioned it to you whilst we were doing it on Facebook, didn't I? Or, or oh, right. Yeah. Yeah, that was, yeah, that yeah was, I remember that. Yeah, that was a while ago, yeah. Yeah, that, that was supposed to be Wooding Dean poltergeist case, which was quite amusing, to say the least. I think it was a case of um, a couple watching one too many, many horror film. Seriously, to to the point of um, like animals' blood being splattered over things and that sort of thing. I mean, that that's what they were they were getting up to. And I think at the end of the day, they wanted to move from their flat, so we were asked to go in by the council and investigate it, and um, we debunked the whole lot. Right. Of um, a week or two, I think it was. In the end, did you actually? Did you actually see animal blood splattered yes. on things yes. that they'd done? Yeah, and it was fresh. And one of the blokes who took us up into the flat said, oh, it wasn't me, yet the evidence was on one of his trainers. 
Oh, God. It was that pathetic. And they were saying, oh, yeah. Um, we, we, I mean, the, the flat above them was completely empty. So you can imagine what an acoustic sound chamber it was in the first place. Mm. You know, no, no, no wall coverings, no furniture, no carpet to dampen any noise at all. And they were saying that they were hearing dogs barking, yet none of the neighbours had a dog. Yet we found the next door neighbour had a dog. Um, they heard that, that they were hearing the stairs moving, like there's someone going up the stairs, yet the staircase was wooden, and right below the staircase in their flat was their fridge, freezer and washing machine. So you can imagine oh. heat makes things expand, and then when it cools down, it contracts again, and it was sounding like somebody on the stairs. I can you know, imagine every time the washing machine was on, that was also shaking, making yeah, vibrations that, through the stairs. Yeah. Yeah, and then they were saying, oh, we can hear marbles being thrown along the floor and that sort of thing. But, but we went and interviewed them, and we put a voice recorder down, and, and we heard nothing. Yet, strangely enough, five minutes after we left that evening, it all started up. And yeah. it was always consistently going on when we weren't there. And, you know, it's just obvious that they were after an exit out of the flat, really, and to yeah. be home somewhere else. But... But we did debunk the whole lot because we put voice recorders in there, we put cameras in there and all sorts, and, and there was no poltergeist whatsoever. Yeah. You know, and even so, to the point saying, oh, um, there's, there's still electricity being used in the flat. Well, yeah, it was, um, the, the downstairs meter was running through the top one. Yeah. So, of course, it would still be consuming electricity. Sounds like you guys were very strict with that one because at the start of the show you labelled yourself as a believer in the paranormal, but you seemed to kind of spot everything that was going on in that case. You know, you you looked for all the sources and dug deeper and found them. So, um, well, do, you, well, do you feel that over the time you've been researching the paranormal, then that you you become more stricter and more sceptical as things have gone on? Yeah, I have. I I've become stricter with with what I take on board, and it's the same. It's the same reality. I mean, I, I get a lot of pictures sent to me and, and you get a lot of pictures on Facebook. Oh, can you see this in, in this picture? Can you see that in that picture? I mean, I have to be shown a picture and I'll say whether it's, it's you know, 99% fake or not, which a lot of the time it's just so obvious. There's one picture that I was shown. Um, it was of a staircase and there's this big green flash going through it and I was shown it and I said, yeah, well, that's taken outside of a window. Reflection is the trees, and also there was, um, I think it was a, a, a keep out sign back to front reflected in the window as well. <laughs> you know, I mean, it does get quite pathetic sometimes. And, and what makes me laugh is all the like people that put pictures up and say, Oh, you know, why is this all blurred? Well, yeah, because you moved the camera just as a flash was going off, and mm. oh. Who's that person standing next to them? Well, they were just walking through the room at the time because it was dark. <laughs> your, your flash is going at a slower rate, so it's going to pick up movement. Mm. So yeah. where, whereabouts is your Portuguese project now? What are, you, what are you up to at the moment with it? Uh, well, well still, still running research on it, but quite honestly, I've never come across a, a, a case yet. You know, I've, mm. and, unless I actually see it with my own eyes at the moment, I'm... I don't believe that it's anything more than than psychological, you know. Mm. But then, what is a poltergeist? You ask nine out of ten people, they'll say, "Oh, it's nasty and it's horrible." But that's only because of Hollywood. I mean, yeah. Poltergeist activity to me is is whether something's moved once, or whether it's on a repeat occurrence. Yeah. 
You know, it's, it's not necessarily anything nasty there. It could be something saying, well, look, I'm here. This is the only way I can communicate. Well, that was the bell. That means doorbell. That means the pizza's here, so that means the show's just about over. So, John, uh, before you do go, I, I do want to uh, have you get your websites out and, and anything you, you'd like to uh, promote while you're here. Yeah, um, website is www.investigatorsofparanormalphenomena.com. Um, keep an eye on it because we've got some interesting stuff coming up and we're going to be doing a lot of charity work this year as well. Now, I, I noticed in the UK, let me ask you this, I know we're just about out of time, but it seems like uh, most of the, the ghost events or everything are, are tied to charities. Is, is that pretty common or, or is that unusual? No, it seems to be more and more common these days. And I don't know whether people are just trying to score brownie points or not, but, but we did one <laughs> last year for, for, for three different charities. Um, we, we held one event, and this year um, we're going in with a local radio station because their, um, their charity this year is, is um, Childline, which is a, a support line for children, a lot of abused children they need someone to talk to, so we thought it's worthwhile, and, um, and we're supporting and raise money for them. Oh, very good, very good. Thank you so much for uh, being here. Interesting stuff, and uh, you certainly have to keep us, uh, you know, abreast of what's going on with you guys, uh, especially yeah. the Poltergeist project. I'm, I'm kind of interested in that. We really didn't get to talk about it too much, but uh, are you actively seeking cases, and should people contact you if they have Poltergeist activity going on? Oh, by all means, please contact me, and I'll go and investigate it for them. You know, all, all the details on how to contact me are on the website. You know, Which is, once again? It's www.investigatorsofparanormalphenomena.com. Couldn't make it any smaller, huh? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, John. I appreciate it, uh, you you're know, welcome. spending the uh, hour with you. And, Cal, uh, your book's coming out next week, and we're all excited about that. And uh, next Tuesday, join me at the Wyndham Restaurant. I'll be with Ann Carrigan, my co-host from Ghost Chronicles Next Generation and Cemetery Tripping. And we'll be doing a Dining with the Dead there. So uh, drop by and uh, actually register online at the website, which is the letter N, the letter E, ghostproject.com, ghostproject.com. So another show down the tubes. And I want to thank you once again. Cal, have a great day. And uh, John, you too. And uh, see you all on the flip side. Brilliant. Thanks a lot. From goalies to ghosties, long-leggedy beasties, and things that go bump in the night, deliver us good lore.